Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. My name is Larry Mishkin. Uh, I'm your host today, uh, and we have some special news on the show. Uh, one of our uh, recurring guests and a guy who we always like to have on because he's just a lot of fun to talk to uh, has graciously agreed to join uh, Jim Marty and I on a uh, fairly permanent uh, basis, maybe with a little rotation through the uh, three of us, we'll see. But Rob Hunt, welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. As uh, as one of us, we're, we're glad to have you on board. Thanks, Larry. I'm uh, super excited to be here as a host. It's super cool. Well, good. Uh, for our listeners who haven't uh, had a chance to listen to Rob yet, um, he brings a vast amount of knowledge, both in cannabis and the dead, uh, a little bit of a businessman's edge to it as well. So uh, very well-rounded viewpoints we can give you here with uh, uh, Jim Marty, who's not with us today. He's traveling back from a client's uh, facility in Oregon, so he's in the air right now. Uh, but Jim uh, says to say hello, and uh, of course, Jim is with Bridge West uh, uh, Consulting and Accounting, and uh, they do a lot of work in the uh, cannabis space. I'm with the Hoban Law Group, also with a lot of uh, work in the cannabis space, and uh, Rob is in the cannabis space, so uh, uh, he has a lot of opportunity to do stuff there, too. As we head into our show today, uh, we do have some guests, but before we dive over there, I think it's worth noting that just a few hours ago, at least uh, for our time here, not when everybody listens to this show, but as we record it, uh, just a few hours ago, uh, we had a quote-unquote peaceful transition of power in this country. Uh, Donald Trump has departed the premises, and Joe Biden is now in charge. Um, you know, other than those who uh, see this as a fresh start for America and uh quite frankly, a breath of fresh air. Uh, on this show, uh, we try to keep our politics more or less limited to the world of cannabis and the impact it has on this. And uh, Rob, uh, let's get you started with a nice question here. Uh, what's your impression on what this new administration means to cannabis in the United States? That's a great question, uh, really open-ended question. And I think that it's, it's worth noting, Larry, that not only you know did the, uh, the change of the guard happen at the White House, but as we're talking right now, we've got Alex Padilla, Raphael Warnock, and John Ossoff uh, getting sworn in as uh, three new senators, all on the Democratic side, which means that probably by the time the show is finished recording, um, we'll have a 50-50 tie in the Senate uh, as of you know today, which I thought you know might take a few weeks longer. So you know we now officially have a, um, a Kamala Harris as a tie-breaking vote in the Senate, and we now have new Senate appointments as far as new chairs which means that it's a completely, completely different world in cannabis than it was, uh, you know, this morning. So, you know, I, I think we're looking at um, probably a compressed timeline towards federal legalization. I don't think it's, you know, something that happens in the first 100 days of uh, the Biden administration. But I certainly think right now that we have, you know, a real chance to see some major pieces of legislation make it out of the House and actually into the Senate where they'll actually get a hearing committees are assigned to and certainly end up getting a Senate floor vote. And if they do, I think we have a, a willing and able president to sign those bills into law. And I think we have an attorney general now in, in Merrick Garland or soon to be Merrick Garland, uh, who isn't going to stand in the way the way uh, Jeff Sessions or Bill Barr would. And so it's a it's a great time in Canvas. It is. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing to be able to sit here and talk about all of these things instead of imagining what they would be like and to know that it is now our reality. And, and you know, uh, although Jim and I don't always see eye to eye on politics, you know, one of the things that we, we like to take note of is how marijuana is the great uh, unifier in this country. And everybody talks about this message of unity. And in this last election, with all the close votes and everyone talking about fraud and someone's, you know, really coming down to the wire in Florida, uh, Georgia, we had the runoffs. The marijuana proposals all passed by large margins in every state where they came up. And that included South Dakota and Mississippi, so we're not just cherry picking some, you know, some nice, uh, you know, green, blue states here. These are, uh, uh, you, you don't get much more conservative than South Dakota uh, and Mississippi. And the fact that those measures easily pass by 20 or 30 percent margins in, in, in those states uh, really speaks to the fact that this country is ready to be a pro-cannabis country. Uh, I know that there's a couple of big bills that have been passed in the House and have been uh, just waiting to get on into the Senate for consideration. And. Uh, Mitch McConnell, for his own reasons, has been a uh, uh, a doorkeeper who hasn't been very uh, willing to let really anything sponsored by the Democrats, let alone these types of bills, come through. And to me, the exciting point is that if a guy like Chuck Schumer says, yeah, let's move this through committee, let's get this out on the floor for a vote, I think that uh, this is not a, a Democrat-Republican vote. I think this is a vote that pretty much goes pretty heavily in favor of pro-marijuana and, you know, whatever topics they decide to address and, and bring out at that time can only be good for the industry and for those of us uh, 
that enjoy cannabis. Yeah, I would tend to agree. And I think that, you know, for the first time now, the industry is, um, is looking at this and thinking to themselves, is this going to happen faster than we had calculated? And from a business standpoint, you know, what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for, you know, the potential of big business coming in? And I think that, you know, for those of us who have been, you know, on the advocacy side for, you know, going on 30 years from me now, uh, it's, it's really tough to see that, you know, for the first time, I'm really seeing what I, I believe is to be the light at the end of the tunnel. But on the other side of it is, is it happening in some ways too fast because, you know, now there's such opportunity. And if you, um, if you look to what's happened on Wall Street in the last two weeks, you know, north of $2 billion has been raised into cannabis companies on private deals. Um, you know, every day there's an announcement of another one. You know, Harborside raised $27 million yesterday. TerraSide raised $224 million. Cureleaf raised $300 million. Uh, Trueleaf just did, did a huge raise. Juicy just did a huge raise. You know, across the board, the appetite right now for cannabis is massive based on the sentiment, um, you know, that came forward after the uh, the Georgia runoffs. But we're in a place now where, you know, everyone's shoring up their uh, their balance sheets and they're they're ready to start moving to try to consolidate this industry. And I think there's a lot of small players that have been in this time that now are trying to figure out what to do uh, because it's it, it's inevitable now. You know, the the the, the uh, walls of prohibition are crumbling. They are. It's uh, it's exciting to see and uh, it's exciting to be a part of it while it's happening. You know, to kind of be living through history. Um, and talking about uh, people in the industry who might uh, really help carry us forward, uh, we do have some guests on our show today uh, who I'd like to introduce, Brian Fields and Kellen Finney uh, from 8th Revolution. Uh, gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, why don't you each give us, uh, you know, some uh, quick background on yourselves in terms of uh, how you managed to get into the cannabis space, how it is you're working with each other, and please tell us, uh, you know, very quickly and our listeners about 8th Revolution. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I think I'll go first. First off, thank you guys for having us on. It's a pleasure. Um, excited to talk about the dead and cannabis for sure. So um, I'm Kellen Finney. Got into the industry six years ago out in California after I finished up my graduate degree in chemical engineering. Uh, went out and got involved with a startup in the medicinal market out in California's cannabis market. And we're doing CO2 extraction. Um was able to stay with that company for about three years and got to see it go wreck adult use come online, which was really exciting. Um, then it kind of reached a point where I was just looking for a change of scenery and they wanted to kind of um, stay small, like you were just talking about Rob and um, was looking to kind of advance my career and took a position in Washington uh, with a vertically integrated company at that point. Uh, really large, got to handle a bunch of material hands on and then um, Again, kind of reached a ceiling and wanted to uh, control my own destiny. And I was fortunate enough, uh, kind of in that transition, to link up with Brian here. And uh, we were able to start Eighth Revolution. I'll let Brian kind of give a little bit about uh, background about himself now. So my background's uh, a little different. I appreciate you guys having us on. Sure. Uh, my approach was uh, marketing and technical business development, where I worked for a scientific instrumentation company, where we're, our focus was on quality control. And I was tasked roughly three years ago with entering the, the cannabis market as obviously what was going on was kind of a developing market. And one of the, the first approaches was to attend uh, MJ BizCon with a focus of understanding, you know, what type of technology is being used from a quality control standpoint and how could it benefit the space? And at that event, Kellen and I linked up um, as he was speaking at the Science Symposium. And we saw really clearly from a scientific approach on, on the need to implement sensors and the ability to kind of control the manufacturing process to deliver a consistent quality product over and over again, and kind of set out on this journey to kind of add value to the space. And Eighth Revolution, for what we are, where we provide services to the space, everything from capital to cannabinoids. So anything from helping with a biz deck to, to building it out through the process of walking through the license and the floor plan through selecting the equipment all the way through optimization and distribution. And at the end of the day, what we do best is we're quick moving. We're problem solvers. Kellen and I, there, there's not this big red tape of a large organization. You need help. And most of the time when we get those phone calls, there's clients in needs and they need help right away. And what we do best is we pivot and we move right to answers and to moving forward. And I think that's really the, the strongest benefit that we bring to the table. Okay. What, uh, 
size entities do you typically work with? Are you working like with the really, really big entities? Do you work with smaller uh, business people? Uh, what's your primary market? I think we're all over the place. We were, for the most part, we're on the more of the small to medium term type clients. But one of the biggest areas that we've been seeing in the in the last, I would say, six to 10 months is clients outside of the cannabis space that have kind of associative products that are interested in kind of migrating into the space, kind of dipping their toe into the water. So they're, they're understanding where in the supply chain does our products add value? What are the pain points that are going on? Can you help us integrate this? And can you accelerate our timeline as it seems like the cannabis industry is, which is constantly evolving and accelerating every single day? And how do we position ourselves to obtain this ever-growing market share? Where do you guys see the technology and the capabilities in the extraction side of this business going in other words um i mean i'll tell you you know i'm 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 the old guy in the room and you know back when you know when i was first you know getting turned on to cannabis that's all there was you know every now and then if you were lucky some guy showed up with some hashish or whatever now uh you know this i and i can remember the first time i saw anything at all that was even you know close to being like extraction at a wedding in vermont with some guys up there who were way ahead of their time um and so for me, it already seems like, you know, this is so hip and modern and, you know, we're on cutting edge and then they, you know, we come up with live resin and sugars and where do we go with this? Where, what's the next logical step in terms of extraction and what we can do to unlock, you know, secrets and mysteries of the marijuana plant that we haven't seen yet? Yeah. So um, I think where, where extraction is going is uh, I like to think of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, right? Where... He has that machine that literally takes the tree and then turns it into the whatchamacallit at the end of it, right? And yep. so um, that's probably where extraction is going right now uh, in terms of the, the massive interest in, in the terpenes and these other um, minor cannabinoids, right? Uh, that's only going to continue to grow and uh, proliferate. So I see more and more separation technology being applied to the to the industry and understanding exactly how to optimize getting that the true essence of the plant into a derivative product right and that's why your, your live resins and a lot of the hydrocarbon products are so popular because they do the best job right now of capturing the entire essence of the plant at least from a, a, a thc and cannabis side of things right okay. Do you think that's going to stay like with fractional distillation or do you think it's going to go with uh, something that's more technical than that to actually, you know, separate sauce out from, uh, from cannabinoids and then, you know, separating out different isolates and distillates. So everything is completely moved or, or do you think that fractional distillation or white film distillation are going to be kind of the, uh, the technologies we're going to see going forward? So I don't think that fractional distillation or white film distillation is going to be the answer for purification of kind of your minor cannabinoids and, as well as the terpenes, there's just, um, and when I was doing it in practice, I mean, there could be some future developments that change the space, but uh, the exposure of like all your monoterpenes to that kind of kinetic energy, even if it is really low for, for those white film distillations, I think it, it alters the true profile that the plant is producing naturally. Right. And so I think that realistically, you're going to see more of a chromatography kind of applied in line to the extraction techniques. Um, it, it's it's going to be a cheaper solution in the long run, I imagine, from an economic standpoint. And it's going to provide a more um, robust separation of those different chemicals in line. Right. And then it also plays into kind of your traditional manufacturing space of continuous flow manufacturing, you know, so just feed it as much as you can and keep it running, you know? Run right now in Illinois, one of the big things that's really starting to come out, which was part of the adult use uh, statute when it was passed, is the right for people who are medical patients to do home grow. And I get a lot of calls from people who say, look, I'd love to do home grow, but I don't have any idea really how to grow. So it's become a little bit of a cottage industry here to find uh, people with cultivation skills who you know willing to go into people's homes and kind of show them how to set up. But my impression of that is, you know, and what I've seen from from cultivation and grows, it's it's just simply a matter of going out and buying you know whatever growing equipment you need. And if you wanted to grow tomatoes in your house or something like that, it really wouldn't be any different. Are we going to see a point in time where the technology for making extracts 
becomes simple enough that it can be done by the average person in their house? Or is it always going to require somebody, you know, like your guys like yourselves with a little more knowledge and experience to be able to do it, not just safely, but efficiently and really, you know, generate the good stuff, let's say. Almost like a, a French press, if you will. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you know, more and more. I mean, the thing that I think of is the um, 3D printers. Uh, my brother's in business and, and one of his companies bought one of the very first 3D printers, you know, 20, 25 years ago. It was a big, huge machine. And, you know, they had to get a big loan, you know, to, to be able to, to buy it. And, but at the time it was cutting edge, you know, but within a few years there were smaller machines. And now you can literally do 3D printing on your desk, right? With a, So I'm just wondering whether the technology of of extraction can follow in that way where it can get to a point where, you know, literally somebody can just shove their weed in here, plug it in there, you know, do a few things and sit back. The green light goes on, you pull out the tray and, you know, you have your extract. I think likely, right? I think, you know, as the industry evolves and a need kind of becomes of that, think about if you're making a pizza at home and you wanted to put a little pesto with a little special something extra on there, how amazing that would be. Or for example, at my friend's house, he made it in a in a chicken wing sauce, which was incredible. But at the same time, like that to me is as the industry evolves and it, it doesn't have to just be the flour, it doesn't have to just be the brownie or the edible. It can be in multitude of forms. And I think as the industry evolves and people become a little less with the stigma and stuff like that and kind of it, it, take it in from a different approach, it, it, it has endless opportunities, especially from a, a home sense. Well, I would agree with that. And, and, and I mean, when, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, because my knowledge is always, I find, you know, falling just a few steps behind my teenagers. But um, uh, oil is the big thing these days, right? Especially for people who want to cook now. You can buy the cannabis oil, so you're not dealing with flour. You're not dealing with the grid of ground up weed like we had to deal with back in the day. You know, it's basically an oil that can just be blended right in, uh, you know, with whatever you're cooking. So, um, you know, the question is, and I, you know, do we, do we see a big surgence of pre-measured amounts of cooking oil that people can buy, like a box of whatever, you know, oh, I'm going to cook today. I'm going to take this, pour it in. Now I know I've got a good dose for making my lasagna tonight for dinner or whatever I'm making. Can it become that consumer friendly? I think so. Yeah, I hope so. And not only do I, I mean, I, it's been a little bit since I've cooked down some of the the flour we're talking about. I think it was low and slow, but it's been a little bit. But conceptually, the idea of maybe, you know, growing your own flour and then taking it through the process to putting it in there is the same concept as the tomatoes. And I think it'll just be kind of looked at very similar and probably in a little more time than it should, in my opinion. But conceptually, I think we're, we're on that route of just kind of putting it next to the basil leaf and incorporating it into your cooking. So I know that you guys spent a fair amount of time thinking about um, minor or trace cannabinoids and, you know, the trend obviously in the industry is moving away from THC Delta 9 as kind of being the primary focus of cannabinoids. We obviously saw, you know, CBD have a, a huge sort of pop about four years ago that's now, you know, largely bifurcated the industry between hemp and THC-based cannabis. But now we're seeing a lot of interest in, you know, the Varin series. We're seeing THCV starting to pop. Um, but we're really seeing THC Delta 8 start to pop. And there's a lot of interest from a legal standpoint of, you know, whether or not you can ship THC Delta 8 across state lines, you know, how it's produced, whether it's produced from CBD as a, um, as a, a cannabinoid that you create essentially through adding a catalyst and then coming out with D8 as your, uh, your end result. And really, you know, what, you know, what the DEA is ruling on that was when they put out their interim final rule in August of last year. And what we can expect going forward with, you know, a new attorney general uh, that's looking at this and, you know, a new head of the DEA obviously coming forward as well. So just, you know, some thoughts on kind of what you guys see um, broadly about trace cannabinoids and then more specifically, you know, kind of what you're seeing with the uh, with D8 right now. Yeah. So as far as the miners go, I think that will I think a, a group out of Italy last week just published an article that. They discovered another six or seven minor cannabinoids. So we'll continue to see the miners be recognized and uh, show up in primary literature. As far as Delta 8 goes, I mean, that is probably one of the, the hottest topics, especially in states where cannabis isn't legal, right? It's uh, potentially a means to for individuals to access the effects of Delta 9, but legally, right? And so we just... Uh, we just had actually a, a, a buddy of ours on our podcast a, a little while ago um, talking about these exact uh, situations, right? And so I think the DEA said that Delta 8 or 
synthetic cannabinoids are now illegal, right? So um, cannabinoid analogs might have been the exact term that they used, correct? I was going to say, yeah, yeah I think so the language was, it was four bullet points that the DEA put forward, and one of the bullet points was specific to saying that any synthetic is um, is illegal. But the, the question was, you know, does that include an isometric process that still takes an organic cannabinoid and just does a modification of that cannabinoid? Or was that um, that bullet point really geared towards, you know, K2 and spice and other things that are, you know, coming out of uh, Chinese factories that are adulterating, you know, the original chemical composition of THC Delta 9 in favor of coming out with something that's a true synthetic? And so I think that, you know, the way the, the IFR was written, the interim final rule the DA put out was written, it didn't give true clarity as to the intent of what they were writing. So I think right now the interpretation is still relatively open and uh, and people are trying to figure it out. So I'm, I'm curious to see kind of, you know, Larry and I are both attorneys, unfortunately. Um, so, so we think about things in a very specific way, but it's always interesting for us to see, you know, kind of what people on the ground are, are thinking about in terms of, uh, how they look at the ruling, what the legal guidance they've gotten is, and, and you know what your thoughts are about you know crossing state lines with D8 uh, in light of the DEA's ruling and in light of just um, the way the language was drafted. I think in those situations, it's always best to defer to someone like yourself to kind of make sure that you're handling things the right way. Uh, from our side, the D8's a common question, especially for me here in New York. I get friends and family all the time asking about, hey, can I get this product? Will it get me high? And it's like, well, yes. And they're like, is it illegal? And then you're like, well, depends. Like what, like what's going on here? And that's where it really becomes kind of like that gray area. And that's really um, a unique situation. And I wonder too, Robert, like what you were saying was, why did it become such a hot topic? And for me, I believe it, it's really going to be a short-term fad as these kind of states come online. And then I wonder uh, over time, if it becomes one of those combinations where it, it, it's suited towards a certain goal, maybe the combination of some terpenes and DA with some other minor cannabinoids hits a, a targeted goal after some kind of research and scientific evidence comes out. You don't think there'll be a, um, a long-term market for it as kind of like the light beer market of cannabis? You know, I, I think we have from the perspective of, you know, there's a lot of people that are new to the category that are kind of um, uh, a little bit frightened of using cannabis for the, the whole idea that they've been fed that this isn't your grandparents' cannabis. This isn't, you know, 1970s weed of 5% THC content. You know, now people are growing things that are coming in at, you know, 30% THC. So, you know, I'd like to use the category, but I don't necessarily want to get that high. And is D8, do you think, you know, can be seen as a, a kind of a happy medium? How do, you, how do you communicate that information from a marketing sense? How are you going to communicate to someone that, there's a difference between all these cannabinoids. It's already pretty confusing and marketers are, are really struggling to associate, for example, this is for rest, this is for sleep. And, and ultimately, is it? It's really hard to kind of tell in those areas. I think at least from the short-term approach, the, the two to ones, the, C, the two CBD to the one THC is probably the best approach to kind of communicating the basics. You don't want to get too stoned. Maybe go with the two to one approach, which allows you kind of feel that nice, mellow high, but also that comfortable, relaxed feeling you might be looking for. So at the end of the day, I mean, you guys are like, you know, the early altruists, right? You're the ones who are sitting in the back fiddling with uh, these plants and, and, you know, trying to come up with uh, uh, different cannabinoids that you can pull out. A, a cultivator's just growing the weed and everything else. It's it's you guys who are really sitting there and always looking for two new ways to unlock it. D8 comes out. Um, you know, I, I know that on the uh, uh, one of the big things that we at the Hoban Law Group were talking about with our clients on the hemp side is what do you do with the fact that all of a sudden you've got hemp that spikes really high in THCA, right? Which we all know the minute you light it up, it's going to convert and you're going to catch a buzz. But right now it's hemp. So it's it's 0.3% or less because they're only looking at the D9 levels. You know, there's people out there, obviously, who are taking the time, uh, you know, to figure all of this out. And one of the questions I've always had is, can guys such as yourselves, given what you have to work with, have the ability to keep up with, let's say, if, you know, Big Pharma finally comes online and can get its hands on cannabis, you can really start digging down deep and unlocking, you know, some of these secrets of the plant that we may not have even discovered yet. Competing with Big Pharma is never a great approach, but also the same can be said for some of these smaller processors and cultivators that are trying to compete with some of the big MSOs. At the end of the day, the industry is evolving and there's market shares for everyone. There's 
there's craft brews and there's major brew companies. We, we advise our clients, especially as the industry evolves, is to, to maybe double down on your niche. Find out exactly what you're looking to accomplish. And that's the fortified building that you're building from your moat standpoint. And ultimately, what might come along for some of our partners in some of these other states is exactly what's happened in Florida, where, you know, Cresco went in there and they and they wanted to be involved and they and they purchased uh, wellness. Right. Right. That's let true. me let me just bring back one more thing on that pharma. Yeah. I think there's one important point to make there as far as utilizing cannabinoids as a medicine. So if we're referring to, say, Delta eight as a potential API that's going to be used to cure illnesses. I think that big pharma should be the only ones responsible for the manufacturing of those kind of um, use cases, right? And it's strictly because the tools that they have in their facilities are designed to produce pure products with no byproducts. A lot of what the Delta 8 that's coming online in the marketplace is being done by garage chemists who aren't, there's a ton of byproducts associated with the synthetic products, right? And so that's why you can see a giant rainbow of colors when you're shopping around for Delta 8 on the wholesale market, right? And so I just thought that- residual solvents? Um, I don't think they're residual solvents. They are other byproducts of the chemical, of the catalyst that are being added. They are byproducts from um, alternative mechanisms that are being executed, right? So it's not a perfect- catalyst and there's going to be a bunch of different byproducts and a lot of those byproducts can be hid in the so so that kind of begs the question you know and i don't i don't disagree with you um but the question then is is this best left to the biosynthetics and the uh and, and the industrial agriculture guys that are you know creating uh cannabinoids in the lab and then are you know producing them at contract manufacturing organizations with dea controlled substances permits or is it something that's going to be ultimately better off being done in a cultivation room than using, you know, HPLC to do the extraction or, you know, do the extraction process and then put it through a chromographic system? Uh, you know, as you said, there's a lot of byproducts in the extraction process or can be. Would it not just be smarter to start off with a building block like yeast or, um, or E. coli or uh, sucrose? I think that that is the best way to start. Um, and the technology is coming coming online soon, um, right? Like Kronos Group, they invested a bunch of money in the biosynthetic route and, um, and Ginkgo, they're, yeah. they're, they're developing right now and it'll come online and it will be the, the best option um, when you're utilizing like a Delta-8 or another miner that is, you would have to grow an insane amount of biomass to be able to extract it. That Utilizing yeast in those routes is probably the best way to go about it. Um, and then I'm only strictly speaking to the miners. I mean, when you can get enough of the CBG right out of the plant, it's I think it's completely it should be pulled out of the plant. But when you have to now start adding additional chemicals and some of these really toxic catalysts that are being used to try to convert it over, I think that that's where you end up potentially doing more harm to the consumer and to the industry than is worth the good that could potentially come from it. Well, our guests today have been uh, Brian Felds and Kellen Finney uh, from uh, Eighth Revolution. Uh, they've provided us with a lot of interesting information. Uh, before we pivot away uh, to the music side, guys, uh, just really quickly let our listeners know uh, how they can get in touch with you. If you have a web page, what's the best way to do it if you're on social media uh, so that they can follow you or, or reach out and connect with you? Sure. So we're pretty, pretty out there on social media. Um, both of us have Twitter handles. Mine's Brian Fields 24 and Kellen's is a little more complicated to, to memorize. And from a company perspective, it's uh, eighthrev.com, the number eight, T-H-R-E-V.com. And on a monthly basis, we put together a monthly playbook, which is just kind of an aggregation of current research documents, pricing, technology, and forward-thinking approaches which is a way for us to kind of work with our clients that we don't speak to every single day and, and maybe have a concept that might be of value to them. And it's roughly about 25 pages that we put together in a way to kind of have a forward thinking approach of just the pulse of the industry. And it's just our way of kind of communicating, you know, vantage points and concepts that we're seeing and, you know, what really that could mean to the future of the industry. Okay. 
Well, very good, guys. Thank you. Uh, you are free to uh, stick around for a few minutes as we as we pivot over to music. The other side of our show that uh, we like to spend a few minutes on is is live music jam band with a particular emphasis on the Grateful Dead and, and dead related music. Uh, talking with you guys in advance, uh, Brian. It sounds like you haven't quite uh, broached that uh, that barrier yet. But Kellen, I understand that you had an opportunity to see Dead and Company. I did. I got to see him on their farewell show in San Jose, so it was a good time. Oh, when they did that, uh, the 50-year anniversary stuff when they played yeah, a couple of shows out there. A year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, 2019. Yeah. Right? 2015. Oh, no, 2015. Yeah, yeah, totally. 2015, wow. Yeah, I saw the three yeah. shows in Chicago, but I did not see the, uh, the shows in Rob, I know you were in Chicago. Did you also see the California shows? I didn't because it was only it was only announced as one show initially, and then they added the second show. And at that point, if they'd announced the two to begin with, I probably would have gone out for both. But uh, it was a last minute um, addition of the Friday night. Well, I, I had some friends who were out at that shows, and uh, they had the big rainbow one night yeah. over the stadium. It was really cool and everything. And and truthfully, from my perspective. Um, I forgot which night it was. The first or second night out there was the night they did their whole late 1960s, you know, stuff. And that was really the show I wanted to see more than any of the other shows. I, I liked everything. The three shows we saw were great. But I've always been particularly uh, tuned into that uh, to that psychedelic side, the really heavy. Uh, you know, I, I love the 25-minute Dark Stars. It's just it's a good place to be sometimes. Right? Yeah. Uh... I remember that night, Larry, really well because I wasn't in San Jose. I was actually in Denver at the uh, the Four Seasons, and I was hanging out with Christian Cedarberg from Vicente Cedarberg, and uh-huh. uh, and the two of us were were in the lobby when I got the picture sent to me of the rainbow from the uh, from the Friday night show with the whole sky just pink and amazing, and we sat there and passed it around for everyone else to see. So there's like 20 of us that were um, that were just hanging out at the bar, and it was all all cannabis guys, a lot of deadheads, and uh, Christian and I were both going out to Chicago the next week. So it was, uh, it was, you know, pretty cool to be sitting there like, all right, you know, like we're in for it. This is going to be awesome. Um, but that was just like, you know, one of those things where, where, you know, you sat there looking at a picture in real time, wishing you were there. Absolutely. Well, Kellen, uh, before you went to those shows, uh, had you followed the dead at all? What, what got you to go to those shows? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'd always kind of like dabbled in the dead and those kind of things, but when I was actually out in California, my uh, the owners of the company that I was working for, they are huge, huge Dead fans and been to every show. They're in their like mid forties, you know, uh, older gentlemen, and they were like, "We have to go!" Like we rented the Airbnb, they took the whole company down there, <laughs> so like yeah. it was like it was pretty cool to be able to like go to a show with like just hardcore fans, lifelong fans, who've been to so many shows. My boss ended up like going to the ones in Chicago and like went to every single one because he's like, I have to, <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, it was cool to get to well, go with those kind of those big of fans. And, and, as an older, older gentleman, yes, I absolutely know what you mean. And uh, uh, that's always been the fun. And you know, that's what got me into it, you know, 35, 40 years ago now almost when, uh, you know, we first started going to see him. It was just the opportunity to hang with like-minded people and, uh, you know, the opportunity to know that every night you were going in to see a show, you just had no freaking idea what it was going to be. And, you know, Jerry could fall flat on his face or he could come and raise the roof. And, you know, you, you, you were always if he raised the roof, you didn't want to miss it. And if he fell flat on his face, you were willing to take that chance just not to miss him raising the roof. So, um you know, if, yeah. if for me, it just became a uh, uh, a way of life for a while. And it, it's been nice because at this age in my life, uh, it still has a lot of carryover, particularly uh, because of the fact that it's become multi-generational. Uh, and, and my kids, who are range between 18 and 30, um, you know, have now all, after, you know, yelling at me for years because every road trip we ever took, I forced them, you know, to listen to Grateful Dead all the way there and back. Now they can't get enough of it. They go to see the dead, they go to see fish and they love it. And it makes me feel good because I got to tell you, my dad had a whole case full of records, not one that I ever had any interest in listening to. He and I had, you know, we never saw a concert together, never any of that kind of stuff. But with band like the dead, you, you know, you can do that. And so that's, uh, uh, that, that's really a lot of fun. Brian, what's, what's your uh, musical choice uh, when you uh, have some free time and you want to listen to something? I'm all over the place. So anything from the alternative to kind of the DJ, I really let Spotify just play whatever it thinks, and it just runs continuously throughout the day. 
and just wherever it goes, it goes. Which, you know, look, is a good way to do it too. And, and every now and then um, when I've dead it out and I just need something for a change, I will, I'll do that or I'll go on Pandora or one of them and just hit play for a little while and see what it spits out at me. And every now and then you never know, it couldn't be something, uh, couldn't be something that you really like to see. Brian, you're located in New York. I am in New York. So for a while I worked at Madison Square Garden where I got to attend a ton of really cool concerts and, yeah. and get exposed to to just types of music that I've never got to see. Um, the best experience I have was the the history of rock and roll concert I got to go to, which had like the biggest names of all of them. And just I didn't understand at the time what I was witnessing, but seeing some of like the largest acts like share a stage together and just like play each other's songs was just an incredible experience. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Rob, what do you hear about our boys? Anything uh, in the offing anytime soon? Um, you know, I know Bobby and uh, the Wolf Brothers did their uh, did their New Year's thing, which is always fun, and, and we listened to a little bit of it, but I have to confess that we had been listening to Fish earlier in the evening, and then uh, we listened to Bobby for a few minutes, but I quickly pivoted over to the uh, Goodbye to Winterland album, and uh, and uh, which is one of my favorite New Year's shows of all time, and I'm always happy to come back to that once a year at New Year's Eve. Yeah, no, I think uh, we've ta talked about it before. The closing of the Winterland is uh, it's pretty amazing with eight hours of music and everyone getting served champagne and pancakes in the morning. Uh, now yeah. that way to, to end a venue. Um, I think uh, I, I think what we've seen in the last you know recent time. I don't think there's been too much in the way of uh, of live music happening. I think all of us are chomping at the bit to get back out there and start seeing some shows again. But uh, obviously, you know, traded a really nice thing with those Beacon shows, which I know you covered quite a bit on this. Um, and then it's a question of, you know, are we going to start seeing some more collaborations going into the period of, I think what we're now seeing again is, is another, you know, kind of light at the end of the tunnel, much like, you know, uh, Cam's prohibition ending. I think that we're now hopefully seeing, you know, uh, Biden's uh, charge of a uh, hundred million vaccine doses in the next hundred days. And, you know, if that's the case, and we keep up at that pace. I think that live music is probably in the cards by the end of the summer. So I, I think we're all all waiting to see, and I would expect that you know everyone in the dead is uh, waiting to get back out there and start playing shows again. Well, it seems to me that everyone in the music industry is chomping at the bit. I just read today that Jazz Fest has announced uh, October of this year, uh, instead of their uh, traditional end of April, April yeah. May, uh, they're going to do two weekends in October, um, and they you know they say they're very optimistic that they're going to be able to do it and go forward. And you know I, I'm 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 going to be a little more circumspect until. Uh, until I see numbers shift a little bit, but uh, I think it's great that people are at least thinking about it and, and getting some ideas out there because, uh, you know, that'll be the best thing of all in terms of, you know, getting people back to some sense of normalcy, right? Is being able to go out and see music and congregate with other folks. And Dr. Fauci, whether you, whether you like him or not, says uh, that if the, if the vaccines work and if uh, everything goes in the right direction, that, you know, large scale concerts by this fall are not out of the question. So, uh, you know, that's also a, a little positive light there and something to look forward to. Well, I'm feeling encouraged right now. My uh, my in-laws both got vaccinated with their first dose today, which is uh, just great news. And I'm still waiting to hear whether my mom gets hers in Florida. But, you know, I, I know enough people now where, you know, people they're close to have, have gotten their first dose of vaccine. So, you know, again, I think Fauci was saying that it takes probably north of 80 million people in this country to get the vaccination to to really start making a real dent in this so you can start feeling a bit more safe. But, you know, if, if you were to say, what are you, what are you most looking forward to? Uh, you know, I think this next year's New Year's is going to be one of the biggest celebrations of, of, of any New Year's, uh, simply because every band in the world is going to be back out there playing. And I think every, every music lover is going to be out back out there uh, seeing them play. So what does that mean for the dead community? You know, I, I think that um, you, know, you don't have people that are – as hardcore about seeing shows as often as as members of you know kind of like the jam band or grateful dead family uh or community um so with that in mind i'd, I'd expect that almost every iteration you can think of of every you know kind of touring act is going to start being back out there playing shows just as fast as they can possibly do it once people feel safe to get back out there yeah me too and that'll be uh that'll be great that'll be something really nice to look forward to uh, i've just about made my way through all of my dick's picks and dave's picks and Europe 72 and all the live dead I have lying around the house and uh, I can always start over again if I have to but it's always nice to to get outside and see some 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 real new stuff for a while there and, and see what's going on you know you um, say you say that Larry but at the same time like 
I've rediscovered so many shows I haven't listened to in years as a result of not having anything new to go see. So, you know, uh, my mountain bike and my, my headphones are kind of uh, you know, fully attached to me these days. And I'm on archive.org, you know, picking out different things. And I'll pick an era and say, OK, like, let me think about, you know, five shows I can see from, you know, spring of 83. And, uh, and just, you know, to, to catch different styles and different variations. And, you know, you and I know that, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm a total geek about certain, like, iterations about, you know, how a certain phrase is played and whether it's only played this way in, you know, 79 or it's only played this way. And so, you know, getting back and actually, like, really geeking out on Grateful Dead music again has been really fun before they start playing, um, start playing some new stuff. So, oh, I agree. I agree. Well, it was like when, when God, was it last year or the year before when they released the tour, uh, the 77, May of 77 with Barton Hall. And, you know, I, everybody, oh, Barton Hall's the greatest show. And it is a great show. And there was a time when I listened to it all the time, but I hadn't really listened to it in years. And I put Barton Hall on it. And like from the very first note of the very first song, I, right away, you were like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This concert, this is going to be great. And by the time they got to the morning do at the end where, you know, you know, the, Jerry blows the roof off the joint. I mean, it's it's just a big love fest. I mean, you, you just can't beat it. And it, it's great to rediscover it again. And it was funny, on, on the radio uh, yesterday or the other day, I heard, um, uh, I, I listen to Fish Radio sometimes. And unlike the Dead Station on XM on, on Fish, they have a DJ. Uh, they only have a, a, a small number of them. They're always rotating around. But she was talking about, a, we're going to be playing for you a show later on. And... The second set is great. It has a number of type two jams. <laughs> right, right. What's a type two jam? A type two jam is when you're in the middle of the jam and you turn to your buddy and you say, what song are they playing again? Type and two. It, and it's also one where um, multiple musicians are soloing. It's not just a, uh, it's not just a, a guitar solo, but where it's multiple people are, are all in the pocket and going their separate ways before they bring it back together again. So, yep. you know, like in, in type two jamming, I think is uh, one of those phrases that only people that are, you know, jam band fans would, would ever, you know, use because everyone else is so composed as far as, you know, like the, on the indie scene, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge indie fan as well, but, you know, every single time uh, an indie band plays a song, it's going to time in within like a second or two of how it was written. Whereas, you know, with, with type one jamming, you know, you might actually have an extended period of time where the guitar, you know, plays a longer solo, but with type two, it's just mayhem. <laughs> you know, it's... it's and that's you know, and that was always the best. And you know, this this is I think like where my kids had the hardest time. And you know, when I say that, I don't mean to like you know be patronizing to you guys, but you're more closer to the age of my kids than you are to me. But you know, yeah. for them, and, and I think the hardest part about anybody adapting into it is really understanding the power of of the jam. You know, and and it's great to have the lyrics, and it's great to be able to sing along with the song that you know. But what does make it so special, you're right, Rob, or, or you know, and, and you, boy, by God, you can listen to, you know, Help on the Way, Slipknot Franklin's Tower through five different eras of the dead. And you'll hear very distinct different ways that they play it and different things that they're doing. And you can hear that with all of their stuff. And I just see that as evidence of them growing over time, which is what always kept them relevant. Because, I mean, if Scarlet Fire sounded like Scarlet Fire the exact same way every single time, it would be great to see. But after a while it would be scarlet fire but the fact that on any given night you didn't know if it was going to be scarlet fire or was it going to be scarlet something else or was it gonna this or that and was jerry going to remember the words for god's sakes i mean you know there was just so many variables that went into it that gave you that feeling that who knows so uh so my question for you is with the inauguration today you know what what uh what song kind of typifies the the american feeling um you know for the grateful dead like would you pick a u.s blues or would you pick a liberty you know what, what would you uh, go as far as you know thinking about um just kind of what what a new uh administration means and you know just politics in america today um good question uh i can't pick liberty um you know liberty is one of those litmus test litmus test songs i think for some people and what I find is a lot of the newer, younger deadheads really, really love it. Um, I know that the band claims to love it and think it's one of their Jerry and, and, and Robert Hunter's finest works. It never clicked for me in my crowd. And, you know, Liberty, we, 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 maybe not quite in the same category as Day Job, but it just never really, it never really took off for us. I, I, I So I kind of pushed that off to the side. I love U.S. Blues. I think it's a great tune. It's a little bit irreverent and, you know, maybe a little bit of irreverence is what we need right now. You know, um, 
summertime done, come and gone, my oh my, you know, maybe Trump's time now come and gone, my oh my, you can substitute that in there for it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to go home, home tonight and I'm just going to, you know, probably throw on a nice, you know, circa 1968-69 Viola Lee Blues and, you know, just crank it up to full volume and, you know, just feel like I'm just letting it wash over me and, you know, get those bad vibes out of the way. And I will tell you, that's the one jam tune I really wish they would have kept playing. There was no lyrics. Jerry had nothing to do but go out and play his guitar for 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah I think... I think there's going to be a fair amount of catharsis around the country tonight, no matter how people choose to uh, to celebrate. You know, there's obviously a lot of people that are pretty upset by, you know, today's result as well. But I think for those that have been, you know, collectively holding their breath for the last four years, uh, there's a pretty big national exhale that's happening today. True. And I'll tell you, I, I you know, again, I don't, I'm not here to talk politics, yeah. but I think, you know, it's hard to just miss the basic facts that, Four years ago at this time, you know, there was a whole group of us sitting around really worrying, do we even have it tomorrow? You know, is this guy crazy enough to go push a button and all of a sudden, you know, life as we know it has come to an end? Um, and he didn't, okay, to his credit, I guess. Um, I don't have that feeling with, you know, with Biden. Five minutes into Biden talking, I'm like, right, this is what an American president sounds like. Yeah. He's caring and he talks to the people. And, and, and to me, look, any Republican who would have been president the last four years would have probably put in a lot of the same policies, appointed the same judges. But I wouldn't have walked around with like this fear in my heart and this, you know, you know, this big lump in my stomach the whole time, you know, so worried and so afraid. I wasn't a Ronald Reagan fan, but when he spoke, he reminded me of my grandfather. It was almost comforting to listen to him talk. Not so with Donald Trump, but Biden today, five minutes into it, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, this is a guy who, who connects with the American people and really cares about them. And I believe him when he says that he does want to be the president for all people and he's not going to decide what state gets the vaccine based on whether or not they voted for him. Yeah. Well, I think I think for me, it's a, a great excuse to wean myself off of a huge Twitter addiction. Um, you know, spend far too much time, uh, you know, checking things to see like what the news of the minute is because things change so fast. And, you know, I, I never cease to be amazed. And every every time where I was like, you know, this will, um, you know, I, can you believe this happened? And finally, I hit a point, you know, about three years into it where I said, yeah, I can believe all of it. You know, nothing surprises me anymore. But then it was just watching for, you know, if there's anything even crazier than the last. So so now I feel, you know, not just the catharsis of a, of a changing of the guard, just, you know, where I feel the country hopefully can, can start to heal a little bit. But from the perspective, there's so many people I think they are going to be far more productive because they've got a lot less time to worry. <laughs> so if it's, uh, right. if it's the ability now to, to listen to more music or if it's the ability to go out there and spend more time with your kids or go out there and you know, go hiking or biking or do other stuff that's more productive, uh, I just really I, I look forward to a lot of the people that were just glued to their televisions, glued to their news sources to kind of say, OK, but I don't think, you know, we, we have as much to to, you know, get outraged about right now. You know, sure. On the right, there's going to be a lot of policies they're not going to like on the left. But I don't think it's going to be, as you said, with the same amount of, um, of bombast as, as we saw before. Right. And, and that's, you know, so much with an eye towards you, you wonder if he's really trying to hurt other people and all of that. But but here, here's what I'd say in closing, because I realize that uh, we have been going on maybe in a little bit past our time, thanks to our good guests today and uh, interesting topics to talk about. Um, but we all have relationships with people on both sides of the aisle. So if you're a Republican, yeah. there's Democrats, you know, and your family and friends. Democrats, you Republicans, you know, and, you know, we all talk about a time for healing and everybody has to heal in their own way. And I get that. And I don't expect Republicans to come running in today and say, oh, Joe Biden is is the bomb and, and we're all with him. Uh, but we do have to find a way to be able to talk to each other once again. And I would just very, very humbly suggest to our listeners and that they share with their friends and family and everyone out there that the best and easiest way to do that when you're in that crowd is to pull out a joint and light it up and wait for the first, you know, you're a Democrat, wait for the first Republican to come over and say, what strain is that? And the minute they ask you that question, you guys say, that's it. You've connected. The political issues kind of fall to the side because he's going to say, oh, yeah, well, I got a guy who lives out in Humboldt, and he grows this strain, and he's going to pull a joint out of his pocket. And before you know it, everybody's sitting around getting high. Hopefully you forgot what got you upset in the first place. And if you're really, really lucky, you come across some eighth revolution stuff, and everybody goes home with a big smile on their face. So, um, Again, we talked about a lot. Cannabis and music are the two equalizers in so many different things. And if there's anything that unites people, uh, smoking weed and uh, listening to good music usually gets the job done. 
Amen. Brother. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Uh, once again, a uh, big shout out and thank you to Brian Felds and Kellen Finney of Eighth Revolution uh, for being with us today. Uh, guys, one more time, just give us the uh, website where our listeners can get a hold of you. Uh, it would be Eighth Rev, and I can provide the information in the show notes as well. And we've got a 10-minute uh, podcast we call The Dime, where we dive into um, current events and topics. We talked about the Georgia. We talked about D8, and it's, it's hot takes only. So it's a, it's a really quick dive, and um, pay, kind of pay homage to it with the, the name of The Dime. Well, excellent. Hopefully our uh, listeners will make their way over there and be able to do that. So thank you to you guys today for joining us. A uh, special shout out and thank you to uh, my new co-host, Rob Hunt. Rob, it's great to have you on the show and welcome to the team. Thanks, Larry. And thanks, Brian Kellum, for, uh, for joining thanks, us today, guys. Thanks for having us. We appreciate the time. Sure. And finally, uh, a shout out to my uh, other co-host, Jim Marty, who could not be with us today. Hopefully he's traveling home safely from Oregon and will be back to join us next week with wonderful stories of what took place uh, up in the state of Oregon. Uh, until then, for all of our readers, uh, listeners, this is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, enjoy, and uh, when you enjoy your cannabis, please do so, do so responsibly. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.